finish up your thoughts. We got a we got a couple of mic runners, and like we usually do, I'd like to have like an open discussion, like an like an open dialogue together about the text. And um, if you want, if you have if you have like something you you saw or somebody in your group shared or something like that that you want to share with the whole community, you can just raise your hand. We'll bring in mic. And we can have like an open dialogue. And if you feel like somebody shared something amazing, they're just being too shy, just call them out. Ask for the mic and give it to them. Whatever. We got it figured out. We figured out the passage. Yeah. Ryan. Uh, let's see. So the one thing that I that stood out to me particularly in reading this was two things so yeah. one was verse 25 yeah and it's only in the sense that it says like your ancestors and so you know your original question was like could we like as readers in a modern day sort of insert ourselves into this acts narrative you know what what is that like and yeah. part one is is me thinking about that like thinking about the story as a connected story throughout history and time yes. Yes. Uh, in the, the, the extreme long term. Yes. But then the other part too was just, you know, even as, you know, uh, you know, you guys have been going through the end of Acts, there's yeah. a lot of time that's passed in yes. between those stories, between right. the two years he's on house arrest or right. the, there was like a whole government regime change right. where they have to try to figure out what to do with them. Yep. Like this is taking a lot of time. And when we tell our own stories, we never really think about them. We, we almost always recall them in very short chunks like this is what happened to me today sure. and it's like a, a short story yes instead of like a story that takes place in five years or maybe even that connects to our ancestors yes yes so good everything you just said is very not western <laughs> so it's just like so important to engage the text with that kind of a view right that uh being able to yeah, when they say, it's not just, he's not just saying the Holy Spirit is speaking this to you. He's almost referencing, he's saying the Holy Spirit spoke to your ancestors and it still applies, and to you. Both. And if that's true, is it also a word for us who reside in that lineage? Uh, uh, and in what, to what degree? You know, uh, most of us here, not all of us, but most of us would be Gentiles. <laughs> Not everybody in here is Jewish, so which ancestry, right? But like, but also, common humanity ancestry. You know, is 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 the spirit of the, something the spirit of the Lord spoke to humanity in one certain point in time? Are we linked into that lineage? Are we linked into that promise? And telling long form stories, you know, again, two years here in house arrest, two years under those those governmental changes. A whole bunch of time under a shipwreck, waiting for the shipwreck to get through, being at Malta for a few weeks. Even before that, you know, uh, lead his time trying to get to Jerusalem in the first place. This is all for one goal. He's just trying to get to Rome. And it took him four to six years, uh, a couple different prison stints, a, a whole bunch of different hearings, and, and trying to survive. Um, so exactly right. It's like, which part of his story does he tell? The little slim version of surviving this or that, or is it like a much broader story? Be careful getting me talking about a long story. It's just like, <laughs> I don't have short stories. That's great. Others?
There's one here. There's one there. We're waking up now. This is good. This is excellent. Hey there. Yeah, I was uh, thinking about um, verse number 26. Um, Go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. And that seems to me that that speaks directly to what you're talking about, that dissonance that we feel um, on a daily basis, you know, between church visits, Bible study visits. And that made me think that um, daily uh, reminders are important in order to decrease that dissonance, like maybe daily uh, reflection or daily prayer, daily Bible reading, because our brains, you know... There's just too much going on. Yes, right, right. No, yeah, mem- and memory is important, and and it's a it's a it's a common theme, especially in like in in Jewish context, talking about memory and remembering. But that Isaiah text, it's it's he's he's citing Isaiah six, and that Isaiah text is is is, you know, Isaiah is known as like one of the most faithful prophets in the Old Testament. And literally a staple, a, a, a promise from God for his ministry is that you, like people will ne- when you go around like, be, like writing and trying to talk to all these kings and being a prophet to the nation, they will, they will never actually understand. They'll never hear you. They'll never see. So, yeah, agree, yeah super encouraging. Awesome. I'm calling you into ministry. And it's going to be really difficult. And I'm going to give you a whole bunch of like prophetic words for kings and nations and communities. And over the course of this ministry, which is going to be very difficult, you will not actually see a single person understand, hear, see, or really get or receive what you're delivering. I have called you. Go. <laughs> no thanks, right? No thanks. I, I, I just think that Isaiah 6 thing, it almost, it's not a part of this text, but I think it messes with our, with our metrics of how we define success and failure in ministry. I just think Isaiah is known to be one of the most like, faithful prophets, faith, like faithful instruments of God in the Old Testament, and he didn't have a single person receive the message. And Jonah is known to be the worst prophet in the entire Old Testament, and yet an entire city and its cows repent. <laughs> So it's just like, are you good at, are you, you know, success, failure, good skill, all that kind of stuff. It just messes with all that. Like faithfulness to God actually has much less to do with the, the output and outcome metrics that we might like care a lot about. Um, it's a good word. George Edwin. I look at verse 21 and I just think of how deflating that must have been. Because they're like, no, we don't even know anything about you. <laughs> you know, haven't heard anything bad or whatever from anyone. So I just think that that right away was an odd start to, to everything for yes. me. Yes, yes. Yeah, it could be, it could be like, like Paul's coming in thinking like, certainly you've heard about this and everything happening. And certainly you've heard about me. And it could be deflating for, the, for them to be like, no, we never heard of you. Or it could be like, thank God you haven't heard <laughs> All of this stuff that I have to deal with. Thank you. Awesome. But what they have heard is, so they're like, we don't know you. But all we've actually heard from people talking about this sect of Judaism, the way, some people call it like the way of Jesus. All we've heard about that sect is problems. 
So if you're saying you're like a part of that, well, this is very interesting. And we'd love to come back another day and have a bigger dialogue about that. It's very nice. And, be, and interestingly, my favorite line from a commentary this last week, my favorite line, Craig Keener, uh, uh, New Bible Commentary on the New Testament, he talked about how there's a lot of, did anybody else think it was weird that like he, Paul is, is going nuts for four to six years trying to get to Rome, and he gets there, and there's already brothers and sisters there? Anybody see that? It's like, oh, maybe I wasn't, did I hear that from the Lord wrong? <laughs> we're good, we're good. But there's already brothers and sisters there. And, uh, you know, and then he's, and then there's all these, he's getting all these Jewish leaders together. He, they're having these dialogues and conversations. There's not as much hostility. He doesn't feel as much hostility as he does in other places. And uh, one of the commentaries I was reading was talking about how there'd be a lot of, there'd be a lot of Roman citizens who were sympathizers to the Jewish way. They were open to it. They were interested. They were spiritually curious. And suddenly, uh, what's most this is this is actually a very uh, a validating word for marketplace missionaries because you know how brothers and sisters wind up there because this is like an intersection of a whole bunch of different trade routes, and there'd probably be people who who surrendered their lives to Jesus, but they're still fishing on a boat or or transporting things, and they're just like being they're just being witnessing missionaries wherever they go. And they just come across Rome, and they just talk to a few people, and the Spirit of God falls, and speaking in tongues, and healing, and suddenly you've got a few brothers and sisters. Enough brothers and sisters to actually know each other, and convene, and know that Paul is coming, and go out and try to find him. And the reason why, this, this, this commentary literally says the reason why that they would have so much success among Roman citizens is because there would be Roman citizens who were sympathizers to Judaism, and as soon as they would hear about the way of Jesus, their, their, their gut would be like, oh, so you're telling me there's a way to actually be, like, like jump into this Jewish worldview in a sect of Judaism that doesn't make me get circumcised? Sign me up. <laughs> Sign me up. I'd never thought about that before, but I was like, eh, it makes sense. It makes sense. It makes sense. It makes sense. Very, I'm not, I'm, I'm open to this, but I'm not quite to the place where I'm going to sign on the line. You're saying there's like a, a version of this, and I don't have to do that. Awesome. Let's do that. I'm in. I just, I, I think it's, it's fascinating that there's brothers and sisters there. I think, I think it's a validating word for marketplace missionaries. I think it's a reminder that we've seen all the way through Acts that we don't actually bring God anywhere. He's already there. And we come alongside what he's doing. We discover what he's up to. And we, and we collaborate with his work with anybody who wants to be in on it. Uh, you know, I think it's, it's all there. I'm gonna, but if you'd let me jump in. I'm sorry if there was more. I saw a few more hands. I'm sorry. But if you'd let me jump in. I think Luke provides a really interesting ending to this two-part volume. Remember, he, he writes Luke and Acts together. Uh, uh, and he's sending them to this guy named Theophilus. And it feels like a really strange and sudden ending, doesn't it? It feels like we're working toward a climax. We're working toward like a big scene where Paul is before Caesar and we have this big... It's like everything's working up to that. And you feel like it's coming and then we'll have this big scene and something will happen. It'll be this climax moment and then there'll be some like, like falling action and resolution and here's what happens afterward. And then, you know, appendix and, and everything's done. And t like put a bow on it. It's all very nice. But it just kind of ends... And, uh, 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 and there's a whole lot of beliefs around why that happened. Maybe, maybe Luke just ran out of time writing it. Maybe they're actually in the middle of it right now. It hasn't ended yet. 
There, but most people believe he actually ends it this way on purpose for a few different reasons. But interestingly, he does in this ending story that we're studying, he does in this final story touch on every single what I would call uh, uh, the major thematic motifs of the entire book of Acts, the entire narrative. He, so it feels almost like it is a story, but it, it's also summarizing the whole narrative by, by referencing and engaging again these three major themes that are carried through the entire narrative. So I felt led this week not just to talk about this story, but also to talk about how this story summarizes these three main uh, uh, takeaways from the entire narrative of the early church. Like if we just, we just sat down one morning and read the entire thing, what are three main takeaways that we would have? What is, what is it that we're like we're, we're, we're receiving and responding to from this narrative of the early church? I think these three take- takeaways help us make sense of this dissonance that we feel when we read it from our cultural location. These three takeaways help invite us to root our lives deeper in the legacy of the early church. That we actually, when we feel that dissonance, sometimes we want to attribute it to, it's just a different time, a different place, it's just a, it's a different context. So things are just going to be different and just dismiss it. Sometimes that distance is just like, uh, 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 you know, it, the church, God was just doing something very different back then. He doesn't operate that way now. And so we just, we, we're under this kind of like new operation of God that, that he, was, he was doing one thing. He's not really doing that stuff anymore. He's doing a new thing. But I actually think it has to do with these three thematic, take, like these three things that are carried through the whole narrative of the early church. And when we're actually disembodied from those things in our personal missionary life and our spiritual formation, we will receive dissonance when we read this story. But when we're walking in them and embodying them, we can actually connect to these stories that are very different from us. Different from our spaces, our lives, our context. So do you want to be an Acts church? Do you want to be an, an early church? Do you want to have a do you want to form a microchurch in the legacy of the early church? Do you want to be an Acts missionary, an apostolic leader? Do you want to take risks? I think we, we should be people who are asking God for boldness. I think we should be asking God regularly for his uh, to to know and to embody his unfettered love for the other. And I think we should be pressing in and asking God for more and more of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. These are the three things that are carried, that are here in this story, in this text, and they're also carried through the entire narrative. This is the nature of missional life from Jerusalem to Rome and from Rome to 2019. This story and all of, all of Acts really is marked by bold, courageous witness in the midst of risk and trials and suffering and danger. And here again, Paul sits uh, 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 again proclaiming the gospel. He's still in chains. He's under house arrest. He's under a guard. He's maybe paying his own rent at some place while he's in chains and while a guard is watching him, uh, awaiting trial with Caesar for a long time. But let's not forget, he just got done proclaiming the truth about Jesus in the middle of a shipwreck Uh, With over 200 people, he took control of a situation that he had no business taking control of. He decided to get them all together and break bread and have a church service in the middle of a shipwreck. The reason he was on that ship in the first place is because he risked his life preaching to governors and commanders 
and 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 so many layers, Festus, Felix, all the way through. That's why he's on the ship. And the reason he was in the situation, the life-risking situation to be before all those people, is because he was in front of a crowd, risking his life with the proclamation of Christ Jesus. This was a life-risking mission he willfully pursued because he was confident that the Lord was calling him to it. He knew what he was getting into. Prophets told him what he was getting into. The church told him not to get into it, and he still went for it because he was confident in his calling. And maybe it was easier for him to say yes to life-threatening situations because this was actually his fourth time in the story of Acts that we know of, of him getting in close proximity to death. The worst of those episodes was the time that he was stoned so badly that everybody thought he was dead and they left. And if you think he's dead, that means he's not moving, he's barely breathing, if at all, probably covered in blood. For For a community of people to think, job's done here, we can go. And the disciples, if you'd remember that, the disciples come around him and he gets up somehow. I don't know. <laughs> We're good. And they go right back into the city. It's not just Paul that, that lives this missional life, this bold, courageous witness. But it's a missional life that we see in, in almost every character featured in the narrative. It was a missional life that was worth persevering prison for Peter. It was a missionary life that was too much to endure for John Mark. It was a missionary life that was deadly for Stephen and it was deadly for James. And it's no wonder that when early, the early church prayed, they never actually prayed for the suffering to be alleviated, for the trials to go away, but they always prayed that Acts 4 prayer for more boldness and courage in the midst of it. To stand up and be faithful in the midst of it. And that same posture, that same prayer, which shatters a consumer worldview, has been present in the history of the church in persecuted spaces ever since. Always praying less for the end of suffering and for the emergence of some Christian empire or theocracy. Always praying more for faithfulness and courage and boldness in response as they fellowship in Christ's sufferings. And we may not be under threat of death or flogging or imprisonment, but in a post-Christian world, and might I just reinforce that we are in a post-Christian world here, but in a post-Christian culture and context, we are under threat of broken relationships, verbal assault, uh, uh, sometimes physical assault, job termination, potential lawsuits, depending on how you carry yourself in certain situations, what you say. And if boldness is to speak the truth without fear of consequences, or to speak the truth without concern or regard for consequences, we can still pray and ask for a bold witness. I was trying to think this week of peak examples of my life of boldness, bold people, people who say bold things, with no fear of consequences. And I could not st- stop thinking about my five-year-old. Landon will be sitting at the table uh, three times a week. And we'll be eating lunch or dinner. And he'll look at me or Jamie and he'll say, this food is terrible. <laughs> Speaking the truth regardless of consequences 
we had last week we had a conversation with him. We said, man, if you're not going to listen, we get it. That's fine. You're going to eat what's in front, in front of you. This is the rules. We have this conversation every night. But if you're not going to say anything nice, don't say anything at all. And he said, well, I just won't talk anymore. <laughs> a few nights ago, Jamie was out uh, with friends at bedtime, so I was putting both the kids to bed. And I was putting, uh, and before bed, Landon wants two stories, not one story, not three stories. He wants two stories from the same book. We have to read the stories in my bed, and then we take, we go to his bed. Uh, and then, so we were in my bed, we, and we were sitting down to read the stories. Jamie's gone. I open up the book. I'm like, let's read stories. I start with the first sentence. I start saying the first sentence. We're sitting together. We're snuggling. And he just t- takes his finger to my lips. He's, shh, 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 I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, can we just wait for mommy to get home so she can read stories? I said, what's going on? He said, you're bad at reading stories. I said, she's not going to come home for like two hours. And he was like, we'll wait. (laughs) We will wait. We will wait. Last week, every morning when I'm leaving the the house, I'll, I'll I'll like hug, kiss, you know, Jamie, Jackson, who's our one-year-old, and Landon. We'll say bye, and then I go get in the truck and go to work. Last week, I, I like gave Jamie a hug and a kiss, bye. Gave Jackson a hug and a kiss. He's one, so he's starting to like look at me and actually do the wave, like, bye, bye. It's like the best thing ever. He's like, bye. And then I go to land, and I'm like, bye, buddy. Give him a hug. Give him a kiss. I'm like, I'll see you later, man. Can't wait to see you. And he's like, you just going to leave your hair like that? <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? What's wrong with my hair? <laughs> Said it looks bad. <laughs> looks bad. Some of my staff in here are like, well, <laughs> well, that's happened. <laughs> if boldness is to speak the truth without concern for consequences to yourself, you could say Landon is bold. And he'd be a really good missionary. He'd be a really good missionary. If he learns to deliver in a different way. He'd be a really good he'd be a really good missionary. I was reminded this week of a microchurch leader named Paul. I don't see him this morning. But he was a he was a in professional ministry for fifteen years from the eighties until the late nineties. And um, he, you know, he was on staff with a church and then he he left that church in the late nineties and moved with his family to Tampa and Took a took a secular job as we call them. Took a took a, a, a non ministry job at a at a motor company close to downtown Tampa, around 2001, and um, for the first time was having to wrestle with what it means to be what it means to be a uh, a follower of Jesus and to have a credible witness and a faithful witness in a work in a work environment like a workspace. Uh, 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 what would be called a secular space, but what he what he believed was a sacred space. Always sacred space. And he, you know, for the first time, he had to wrestle with some of those realities that so many of us wrestle with. Being, being a witness in your workplace can be tricky because the, depending on, on where you work or what the policies are or who works there, it can be, you, there can be relational consequences to your witness. There can be performance consequences to your witness based on those relational consequences. There can, there's real risk of like potential termination in, cer- in certain spaces based on how you carry yourself, what you say. And if you're going to risk, if you're, if you're p- 
putting at risk relational consequences, performance consequences, potential termination, you're also putting at risk your own ability to provide for your family, your loved ones. This is all significant risk. And for him, to, he, he, and he, for the first time, he had to come in and kind of like engage that space and all of that risk and all of that potential trials and potential suffering. And when we engage that threshold of risk, that's when we're in the space where we're, we're, we're emerging. We might say we're bold and courageous, but we hit those moments and we're discerning who will we be, how will we operate, and we're actually finding out whether or not we will be bold and courageous in the midst of all that. And he just decided, look, I, I, don't, I don't quite know how to do this, but I guess I'm just going to start a Bible study in, in the break room every Thursday at lunch. It's just, a, it's just an easy way to like let my coworkers know I, I follow Jesus and give them a space to talk to me about that if they want. And we, you know, we just try to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of God to this whole company uh, by creating a little space of witnessing community on Thursdays at lunch uh, in the break room. And 17 years later, every week, Every Thursday for 17 years. And Paul has married people in that company. He's buried people in that company. He's counseled people through the worst positions in their lives in that company. He's, he's uh, 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 walked with people through some of the worst. He's celebrated with people in victories. When I was meeting with him last week over breakfast, at the end of our meeting, he just said, hey, real quick, could you just pray with me for this guy? Because I came to this meeting from the hospital where one of my coworkers is intubated under a coma and his family called me first. 17 years of faithful witness, courageous, bold witness in the midst of risk. And you better believe he's got examples of it going wrong. But it's never stopped him. This is the fruit of courageous witness. Courageous witness in simple spaces, small spaces, corners of the city. Where we go to find evil and punch it in the face. The kingdom comes in power. When the priesthood of all believers operates in courage and boldness. And it is not a courage or boldness that we can fabricate for ourselves. It comes from the Lord. We lean on Him. We ask for it. And He gives us a vision that actually dissolves our fears. Are you willing to speak the truth without fear? Do you need to ask God this morning for boldness and courage? But it's not just boldness. Again, there's, there's, there's a, 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 something that happens in this text that is, a, again, a repetition of something that's happened in so many other places. There are people, when Paul is talking about the gospel, there's people who are open to it. They're curious. They're listening. They're having this dialogue. They haven't walked away yet. They haven't got hostile yet. They disagree. It says some people accepted, some people were disagreeing, but they're still there. They're still having the conversation. When did they leave? When did they shut it down and say, we're not having this anymore? When did it turn hostile? It turned hostile when suddenly the gospel is actually accessible, includes the other. People disagree and they're having like an open dialogue, but as soon as, as, soon as the message you speak communicates love and dignity and inclusion of the other, we're shutting this down. I am, we're not having this, we're turning around and leaving. The Jews were actually open and curious. They wanted to gather. They, they got a bunch of people to come and have a big conversation about it. And as soon as Paul says, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. That's when they, they're like, we're out of here. 
we're out of here. We're not having this conversation anymore. And you know why he's in this whole mess in the first place? You know why he's under guard and changed? Do you know, do you know why he's defending himself before the Romans? Do you know why he was on a shipwreck? Do you know why he was before Festus and before Felix and before the commander? It's because he was standing before a crowd, a mob, and, and he started speaking Aramaic. And they listened. They were open. They were curious. Until he said, the Lord had said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And that's when the mob erupts in violence and they say, rid the earth of him. Rid the earth of him. The hostility doesn't come out of disagreement with certain precepts of the message. The hostility comes because he's saying God's love, God's unfettered, unhindered, unrestrained love is also for the other. The people whom you would actually prefer not have it. The people whom you would prefer actually not be included in the family. They're in the family. If you want to be a part of the family, you actually have to be open to them being a part of the family too. This concept of God's love, his care, his plan for people uh, uh, was so outside of the theological imagination and the cultural paradigm of the Jews that God had to reveal this to Peter. If you remember way back in Acts, he had to reveal it to Peter in a dream, a vision of like food falling from heaven into like a, a sheet and then tried to, and then had to orchestrate this crazy supernatural encounter with this other guy who was expecting him to come. And he's like, what is happening? He goes into this guy's house. And then, and then again, Peter's like the... The worst missionary. He's like he like isn't sure if he should go in or should he not go in, and then he ends up going in. He he's like he's like still not quite sure what's happening. Spirit of the Lord, Holy Spirit, just falls on this group of people who are not supposed to be included. They are the other, and so they start operating it. They, they the Spirit of God is clearly on them, operating in power, manifesting, and speaking in tongues, undeniable. And Peter's like, what is happening here? What is going on? And at, simultaneous to that, there's, there's a church that's starting in Antioch. And, and that, that church ends up being like a heavily Gentile uh, uh, church. It still has Jews mixed in. But it's a multi-ethnic, multicultural, missionary-sending church. One of like the biggest examples uh, of, of like, uh, like multicultural, multi-ethnic, tearing down the walls of hostility, sending missionaries to the world, God's heart for the world, uh, churches in, in the New Testament. And it keeps saying like the Lord's favor was on the missionaries who went there and were started talking to people and this, this beautiful church emerged out of that. It's Paul's sending church. A few chapters later, all these Jewish leaders of the early church had to convene this council to discuss whether or not the church in Antioch was actually Christian. Whether or not these people could really be saved. When they're speaking in tongues and healing people and... Like, like people are being, people are like surrendering to Jesus and like death to life and transformation and sending people to other cities to do the same. And they're like, just, just hold on. We see all that. That's great. Awesome. Something's happening. We're not quite sure what's happening. Let's just try to discern what's happening here. Are these people really saved? Are these people really Christian? It's this, this, that ingrained mentality of the other. Was it like so very slow to, to, to embrace and embody God's unfettered love for the other? And later Paul would be writing a letter to the, to, to the churches in Galatia made up of a whole lot of others in the same community and inviting them into the unrestrained love of God for one another. And he said this. He said, in Christ Jesus, uh, you are all children of God through faith. For all, all of you who are baptized into Christ have, been cl- have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is now neither Jew nor Gentile, n- neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Speaking to, a, to a, a letter circulated among a bunch of different churches, made up of a bunch of different others. 
And he's, he's not saying, he's clearly not saying, in Christ, you're no longer a male. You're no longer a female. In Christ, you're no longer a Jew or a Gentile. You still are. What he's saying is, in Christ, the animosity and the corrupt power dynamics between people groups who are, who are hostile to one another, that animosity and that hostility between one another, the otherness that we look at each other with, has been overcome in Christ Jesus. And now, in fellowship of others, we actually no longer submit to the world's logic about how to see one another, understand one another. But now we've been reborn in Christ. The new has come and the old has gone, and we see one another differently. Within God's unfettered love, we try to embody God's love for one another. And just like it would have been easy for Paul to cater... I really need you to think about this. Just like it would have been easy for Paul to cater the message of the gospel to Jews and never mention Gentiles. Wouldn't that, that have gone better for Paul? If Paul's mission was to just like reach as many people as possible and like grow these massive churches, wouldn't it have been better, more strategic, more effective for Paul to never mention Gentiles? And to go into every Jewish place and to just and to just like talk about prophets and Moses and all this kind of stuff happen. And there's going to be some people who disagree. There's going to be some people who agree. But there's going to there's going to be some people who agree until you say the thing about Gentiles. And then they're like, no, hard pass. So why say it? And there's going to, and certainly you would avoid hostility, getting stoned, punched, arrested, crowds, Caesar, shipwrecks. All that goes away if you just choose in all these environments to not talk about Gentiles. I mean, do you ever feel like that'd be like an effective strategy? Maybe if I'm wanting to build, like, like build a big, massive community or whatever, this would be an effective strategy. It's also tempting for us to develop disciples and plant microchurches that never challenge biased love. And actually, when we do that, when we actually never challenge biased love, we accidentally reinforce tribal allegiance and love and tribal prejudice you see rich people can be prejudiced toward the poor harboring a disbelief that god would ever love them god would ever be with them god would ever do anything they're they're actually just a cause of their own choices or they you know they're being punished because of, of previous things poor people can be prejudiced toward the rich Harboring a disbelief that God could possibly love them or be with them or, 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 or do anything with them because of the way that they live and the way that they, that they, they hoard resources at the poverty of the world and, and harbor all kinds of prejudice without actually knowing people. Middle class people can be prejudiced or both. Middle class people can look at anybody more wealthy than you and think, unbelievable, God is not with that person. And look at anybody who, who is lesser than you and, and looks to you with any kind of envy or jealousy and just be like, they're just a product of their own choices. I don't know what's going on. God certainly isn't with them or love them. Tampa people can, prejudice, can be prejudiced towards St. Pete people. He doesn't exist over there. I don't har Harboring a disbelief that God would love them or, or be present. St. Pete people can be prejudiced to Tampa people, harboring a disbelief that God would love them. Conservatives can be prejudiced toward liberals. Liberals can be prejudiced toward conservatives. Rural people can be prejudiced toward city people. City people can be prejudiced toward rural people. Christmas time comes around, you start watching all the Hallmark Christmas classics, you watch three or four of them, and you realize, like, life doesn't exist in the city, you've got to go out to the rural environment and own a cookie shop, and that's where humanity, that's where, like, life really is. Now, happiness isn't real in the city, everybody just needs to escape it, it's killing everyone, you know? 
Game of Thrones people can be prejudiced toward the prudes. And prudes like me can be prejudiced toward Game of Thrones people. Just thinking, God, what, God isn't present over there. God those people can't possibly be included in the kingdom of God. But when we bend the love of God to our own brand of love, we walk into the legacy not of the early church, but in the legacy of Jonah. Who refused to embody the unfettered love of God for all people and to embrace God's grace and proclamation to a city. And what did he do? He heaped judgment on himself, not on the people whom he re- who he wished to receive judgment. And some of us need to ask God this morning coming out of this letter, this narrative of the early church, we need to ask God to, to, for us to know, to deliver to us, to know in a deeper way and encounter in a deeper way His unfettered love, not just for us, but for all people. And to ask Him to give us the, 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 the ability God, to, to empower us by His Spirit to actually walk in that love for the other. And you have an other. And, and maybe it's a person with a face, or maybe it's a people, or maybe it's both. We have others. That we would just prefer not be in the kingdom of God. Just prefer them not be inheritance of grace and life and truth and transformation. So how do we inherit supernatural courage? How do we inherit supernatural love? And how do we inherit supernatural wisdom to discern the tension of courageously speaking the truth in love? I think we need the indwelling presence of our supernatural God in us. If there's nothing else you take away from Acts, nothing else you take away from this morning, if there's only one thing you can remember, you must see the preeminence of the Holy Spirit in the mission of the church, the life of the church, the starting of the church, the formation of the church, the direction of the church. All the way through. In this story, Paul is reasoning with the Gentiles and finally says, The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet that you have calloused hearts, never hearing, never seeing. And just before this story, when Paul lands on the island of Malta, he encounters this like completely unreached people group and they're, they're trying to be hospitable with him. He gets bit by a poisonous snake. They're like, oh, he's going to die. He, nothing happens to him. They're like, oh, uh, there's something seriously different about this human being. And they're like, he's a healer. Maybe we should take him to our chief who has been sick for a long time. They take him to the chief and Paul, you know, Paul through the Spirit of God uh, uh, prays and this guy's totally healed. And they're like, oh, this is crazy. Let's bring the whole community, everybody who's sick in any way. And every, there, anybody in the community comes and, and is healed. Through the power of the Holy Spirit attesting to the proclamation of the kingdom of God. And almost every city he visits on his missionary journeys, there's a manifestation of the Holy Spirit in power and or prophecy to attest both to the truth of the message that they speak and also to attest to the reality of transformed lives right in front of them. Death to life right in front of you. The Holy Spirit speaks and reveals and resurrects and heals and delivers and renews all the way through. And let's not forget that the whole thing started with the Holy Spirit. Literally, the original people just sat in a room and had no idea what to do and locked the door and hid and waited for the Spirit of God. This is sometimes why the book itself is referred to as the Acts of the Apostle, of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the main character of the whole narrative. 
I talked two weeks ago with a, a microchurch leader who's doing ministry with a whole community of single moms and just trying to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of God as, as effectively as they can among this big community of single moms. They're trying to provide resources and jobs and trying to love and serve and care and walk alongside this community of single moms. And, to, and she just, in our meeting, we were just talking back and forth, she just said this, this quick line, it's stuck with me ever since. She said, we've always, it's been, they've existed for about three years now. And she said, we've always developed our microchurch to fail if the Holy Spirit doesn't show up. Amen. That's a good failure. That's a good failure. You see, our kingdom dreams should fail without the presence and power of God. And if our dreams can succeed without him, they were never kingdom dreams in the first place. We must not succeed at things that don't matter. But to lean on the Spirit of God to lead us. And to depend on the Spirit of God to show up. To literally design ourselves in a way that if God isn't present, if God doesn't show up in power, we really don't have any other trick here. We really don't have any other plan. He's got to show up. You want to be an Acts church, an early church, an Acts missionary, an apostolic leader in the legacy of the New Testament church, we have to ask God for boldness that comes from Him. Ask God for courage and witness that comes from Him. We have to beg God for His unfettered love on us and for us to embody it for others, especially those who for us are the other. And at the same time, we have, to, we have to depend on the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to actually empower us to do both of the others. <laughs> to fill us with love, to fill us with courage. The worship team would come up. I just want to invite all of us to consider those three invitations, not just from this text, not just from this story, but from the whole narrative as we come to the end of like a year in this story, a year in wrestling with the early church. I want to invite our, uh, the whole community to press into these takeaways. Because this morning we need, to, we need to press into one we, or two or all three. And you might know already, just in, in, in so far this morning, you might already know. I just feel like the Lord is speaking to me about this one thing. About courage. About willing to say the truth even when there stands on the other end of that consequences and fears. And some of you already know that's what the Lord is inviting you to press into, to ask Him for, to lean into. And some of you already know right now that it's His unfettered love. That you're, you're really good at lo like loving and praying and serving a specific people. And you have a really hard time considering or praying or asking or engaging with another person or another group of people. You don't want to, actually. And this morning, the invitation is to engage, to jump in, to wrestle with God, and to lean in to His unfettered love, to, to invite the Spirit of God. God, expose, expose the ways in me that are not actually aligned with your love, your unrestrained, unhindered love for others. And this morning, some of you might already know, I believe, 
I've, I've operated for so many years out of a resistance to the Holy Spirit, out of, out of an ignorance of the Holy Spirit, out of a distrust for the Holy Spirit because of previous circumstances or anything like that. Or, or I just don't understand the Holy Spirit because I'm new to all this. And if that's you and, and you're just like, I, don't, I, I, I just feel like I don't, I, I, I've been resistant to that. I've been distant from that. God's inviting you this morning. He's inviting you with a fresh encounter of His Spirit, a fresh encounter with His love. A fresh encounter, a fresh filling of his spirit this morning. And there's been weeks over the last year going through this story that you've felt that dissonance. That you and I have felt week by week, Sunday by Sunday, that distance from the story. That distance from being embodied, like seeing our own lives, our own narrative in that story as we've walked through Acts. And I think that feeling comes from, the, from distance, not from history or context or the ancient Near East or the first century or God is doing something different. It comes because of our distance from these realities, from boldness, from, from uh, faithful, courageous proclamation, from the power and demonstration of the Spirit in, in ministry and in life, and our distance from God's unfettered love. This morning, Jesus is revealing our need for that and inviting us in to ask him to ask him for more if you need boldness and courage ask him for more this morning if you need if you just need more of his presence more of the spirit of God indwelling you just ask him this morning in worship just say God I, I hear you I, I, I know this is like a place where you're inviting me in so here I am I surrender I'm coming in now do what you will do what you will and his unfettered love this morning so as we come to the table this morning, I just want you to maybe sit for a minute. Just sit for a moment before you come up and just wrestle with God. Wrestle with what he's inviting you into. One of those things or two of those things or all three of those things. And this morning, I want you to come carrying that with you to communion. Knowing that he's, he's able, he's a good father. He's already secured these good gifts for you. He's not going to withhold them from you. He wants to give them to you. And so come this morning for the, for the elements, the body and the blood, knowing that He's a good Father. He wants to give you these good gifts. And if you want to find like pe people from your team or people from your community and go just find a place to pray, that's okay this morning. That's fine. And to pray for each other, to admit that to each other. Or if you or if you want to come, we've got prayer ministry on the right and the left. If you want to come forward this morning and just say, here's what, I just feel like God is leading me into this. And I just want to surrender to him. We want to pray with you this morning. We want to intercede with you this morning. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this body, this bread is broken for you. When you eat it, you eat it in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup and he said this cup is a new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins and when you drink it you drink it in memory of me. And so underground family I invite you this morning to, to wrestle with the Lord. Discern, wrestle with him, hear from him and to ask the good father for good gifts this morning that he's leading you into to come forward in the victory of those things. And to respond in worship this morning as we're desperate for him and surrender to whatever he has for us. Come what may. When you're ready, the elements given for you.